There's a spirit here. A deeper need to understand why I am the way I am. No matter what you live through in your life, you are going to do great things. That's something that's holding me back that was passed on. What goes on with the mind and the body and the spirit. We're doing soul work. Close your eyes. Think about why you're here today. Regardless of what physically brought you here, you're here for a reason. You're not here just because. You have something to contribute here and you have something to take away. As you're finding out what either of those may be, make a little box for it and uh, keep it in a safe place. And as you start coming back, open your eyes and make sure you use both of those as you finish out today and reflect on them for the days to come. Welcome back to Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native American resilience through and beyond trauma. I'm Susan Bolio, a member of the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota, mother of four, and student at the University of Minnesota, and director of tribal projects to help Native communities explore their resilience at an organization called Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. And I'm David Knoyer. I'm a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, and I now work as an independent consultant, gathering a lot of stories about American Indian culture about our challenges, about our opportunities, about our strengths, about our dreams. This is the fourth episode in this series. In the first, we gave a little background and dug into the concept of historical trauma, why we think it's important to talk about it, and the role it can play in restoring resilience and power to Native communities. In the second episode, we talked about research on adverse childhood experiences and why understanding the effects of early childhood trauma can play a key role in shifting perspectives on the struggles we see in our communities today. And in the third episode, we discussed the science of epigenetics, how the effects of the past are actually genetically inherited, and how this insight leads us back not just to the trauma of the past, but also the power of our indigenous cultures. Today, we're going to move away from the science of individual brains a little bit put some of these concepts back into the context of personal and community experience, and shift towards a discussion about healing, how this trauma-informed perspective contributes to how we understand healing and resilience, and how we see opportunities and examples of this in our communities. As in the other episodes, you're going to hear from earlier conversations Susan and I have had about these issues, along with our colleague Lindsay McMurrin, who's been teaching the communities about adverse childhood experiences, brain science, epigenetics, and resilience. Also in this episode, we're going to hear from Bradley Harrington of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe in central Minnesota, whose voice we heard at the beginning of this episode. In the last two episodes on ACEs and epigenetics, we've talked a lot about how the individual mind is affected by experiences of trauma, how we might need to reinterpret the behaviors of kids in school, a family, or community members struggling with addiction or health problems. But we've also talked a lot about how the root of our historical trauma has a great deal to do with weakening our communities, our ties, our relationships. These experiences are interlinked, how individuals grow up, behave, learn, struggle, and how it feels to live in communities and cultures subjected to the onslaught of colonialism. You can't understand 
or heel, one without the other. When we talked about this with Lindsay McMurrin, it reminded her of struggling with her identity as a child growing up Native, when being Native was considered a bad thing. I always struggled with finding a strong sense of identity. As I look back, I realize that I was always struggling to integrate all the different facets of who I am. I think being removed in a way from my culture um, was really at the root of a lot of the struggles that I encountered. Um, Growing up, I always lived off reservation, um, but very close to uh, my home uh, village of Anigam. And I always felt like I didn't quite belong in either place. That's what growing up on the fault lines of a traumatized community feels like. This is how many of our youth grow up feeling. Going through school, a lot of non-Native friends with good, well-intentioned hearts would tell me, you're not like the rest of them, referring to others um, that they had encountered in my Native community. And for me as a child, um, that was one of the most heartbreaking things to hear because what I wanted to be was I wanted to be included with my Native community, my Native family, and for my friends to point out that I wasn't like them. Just really, I think, highlighted a lot of the, the stereotypes and assumptions that were being made about our Native people and our Native communities in general. Now, looking back again, I I see that they were really feeding off a lot of the stereotypes that we hear about Native people. And now part of what I've realized in doing this work is how many of those stereotypes and assumptions that people hold about Native people simply comes from a lack of understanding our culture, a lack of understanding the other forces at work, lack of understanding about neurobiology and epigenetics. Knowing now all the struggles that we as Native people have endured, it makes a lot more sense now to realize some of maybe the defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms that have been put into place that are read by mainstream society as being difficult to handle or being uh, stoic or easily upset. A lot of us have been direct witnesses to how these negative feedback loops fuel each other. When people don't feel a sense of belonging and they feel really disconnected, there's this deep sense of like loss and emptiness. And so I think some of the coping strategies that we saw as a result was a lot of drinking, um, you know, a, a lot of people that were utilizing substances to cope with that sense of loss and grief and not feeling like they belonged anywhere. Loss of belonging, a sense of grief for community and relationship. These collective experiences continue to fuel individual struggles with addiction or other health risks as people cope and also find themselves isolated. The stereotypes, the years of villainizing and criminalizing Native cultural practices, or the very fact of being Native at all, these historical traumas have created shame, guilt, and grief. We have learned hopelessness. We have internalized some of these ideas about ourselves, our worth, our capabilities. We were pitted against one another and have found ourselves feeling alone. Our minds bear the marks of our history and what it means to be unsafe in this country. The origin of these problems was intentional, and now we have to recover ourselves from the symptoms of what we have survived. Jessica Gurno, a PhD, is the clinical director at the American Indian Family Center and a member of the Turtle Mountain Tribe. And the way she puts this is, the sign of ultimate oppression working is when the oppressor can take away his hands 
stand back and say, look at what they're doing to themselves. What they didn't understand was what they couldn't truly erase, what we would always be capable of doing for ourselves. Resilience is the ability to bounce back when bad things or hard things happen to us. The ability to come back, not just to survive, but to thrive. We have so much resilience. We have ceremony. We can call on those good spirits. We have each other. We are not gone. We are not lost. We have big hills to climb, but we have so many tools for that, new ones and old ones. It starts with just one first step, seeking the knowledge and reflection to heal ourselves. When I first was introduced to Susan and this project with ACEs, I thought, I didn't have time for this. <laughs> That's Kim Lage, an elder from White Earth. She's made this point in a conversation with David and I, and it's one we often run into in our workshops. <laughs> I thought I knew so much because I've attended so many different conferences on this very subject matter of ACEs adverse childhood experiences. And I have something in me that has been calling me out mm -hmm. to what is my adverse childhood experiences? Mm -hmm. What has affected my life? Right. And now that I still carry into these elder years, now I've got grown children and I've got grandchildren. How do I help my children and my grandchildren? Mm -hmm. Did I stop and take the time for myself? We do have to take the time to heal ourselves, and it will help us help others. It's something that Lindsay and I have experienced, as have so many other practitioners. One of the things that I've been guilty of, just like anybody else, but a lot of us in the helping professions, we're always out helping others, right? Doing for others um, and really never taking that time to stop and reflect and do our own work. And so one of the biggest lessons that I've learned through this whole process is really um, I cannot do my best work unless I am actively engaged in my own self-healing and my own well-being. And then I can be the best mother, facilitator, teacher, what, you know, whatever that role is. But um, when I first heard about ACEs, this realization of how ACEs had impacted my life and an understanding like, I have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of healing that needs to happen. And so it went from being that, you know, focus on this is work for the community to really this is work for myself. And then having some of those really tough conversations within my family around what these ACE cycles are and what it looked like and how how that has impacted our family and how this gets passed on intergenerationally. And we talk about that it really is this intergenerational transmission because you do what you know, right? So how you were raised and what you grew up with, that's what you bring forward to your families unless you learn something different. And so I really wanted something different for my children and for my nieces and nephews and for my grandchildren someday. So yeah, this work has really helped me to come to terms with that in a, in a real way and, in, and a new understanding of it, it does start here at an individual level, and then it ripples out from there. We all have to do our own work. In episode two, you heard me telling a workshop how I know when my own ACEs symptoms are being triggered. I had to go there myself before I could go out and be teaching these workshops. These changes always have to begin with ourselves, with the personal. We can't give what we don't have, and that's sometimes a challenge in this work. Lindsay and I have both been faced with this fact. 
This work can be very challenging at times, particularly um, because I think as a Native woman, not only are we bringing this information into the community on a professional level, um, but it also impacts us really profoundly on a personal level as well. A lot of times when I go into a room and I'm, I'm doing a presentation, say, about historical trauma, up front I acknowledge how difficult it is for me to deliver this information because it impacts me. I think about my family. You know, I think about family members who have struggled and who still are struggling and who really haven't found the healing that they're looking for. But this is also why the work is so powerful and gratifying. It's also why we know it is so important, so worth it. It really speaks to my sense of purpose and why I continue to do this work, why I continue to go in front of audiences to talk about epigenetics and historical trauma and adversity um, day in and day out. And that's because uh, of the impact that it's having on people who hear it. Um, after our presentations, very often folks will want to come up and, and speak to us and resoundingly People are grateful um, to hear these truths being spoken, um, to hear these stories being lifted up in a way that they never have before, to hear this acknowledgement of the connection between things our ancestors have endured and problems that we're seeing contemporarily in our communities. I've been in several of Susan and Lindsay's workshops, and when they end, people want to leave with real tools strategies, things they can do to do something about this, to help each other. Ultimately, this is about helping people help themselves, helping everyone in the circle become a leader. We're all potentially healers. This is about people becoming people again, positive contributors to their families and communities who are unconditionally supported and who support and care for one another. We often refer to our community as a circle, and that circle is a space where everyone needs to be held, embraced, and supported through strong, positive relationships. The circle stays strong when everyone practices core values, like respect, humility, reciprocity, that make everyone in that circle a good relative. In the circle, we are all related. Ultimately, as Lindsay pointed out to me, this work doesn't fully take hold until we connect with each other. When I've gone into the Leech Lake community to do this work, um, the message that I'm hearing repeated time and again is how there's lots of good things happening here, but there isn't always that time to connect the dots for people. Because so much time is spent on getting the work done that needs to be done, there isn't a lot of time for sharing and networking. Uh, one theme that most certainly has risen to the surface is how much we love our community, how much we love our people, how much we love our land, how much we love what we're building and, and working towards here in our area. Um, certainly, we're not naive to all of the issues uh, and struggles that our people are going through. But more than anything, what really needs to be remembered and lifted up is the strength that is inherent in who we are as a people. We want good things for our children. We want good things for our families. And of course, we want good things for our community. 
I think the power of this work is in stepping back and recognizing historical influences have really impacted our families uh, and our cycles of being, our ways of coping with stress and um, issues we're having in life. I feel like a huge piece of this uh, moving forward is the revitalization of the bringing forth, the reawakening of our the, the way that we relate to one another, um, our cultural practices and beliefs, those things that um, really helped create strong, vibrant communities. This requires us to reconnect and really sometimes go back. We can't go back, though, to 1852. We're talking about the 21st century. So this requires us not only to look back, but ultimately it's about practice. And how do we, quote unquote, go back? In our conversations about adverse childhood experiences and trauma in this lifetime, epigenetics, brain science, resilience, historical trauma, it's about practice. The knowledge we have talked about here can help shift our perspectives and then we need to turn to the practices that restore us to ourselves. And we have that in our communities. We have such incredible examples of this. One of the most fundamental building blocks of these cultural practices is indigenous language. One of my heroes, Bradley Harrington, is a 30-something member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe, who also happens to be their commissioner of natural resources for the tribe, has found his way to teaching the Ojibwe language partially in response to his own quest for purpose. Bradley is a convicted felon who also talks openly about his past addiction to drugs. This is Bradley talking about language and his life to a group of Native American leaders, sharing some of his story in the community about his own practice of healing and change. So knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. I had to get put through some pretty tough stuff to be able to relate to others in order to help them. So it's never too late to become the person you're capable of being. Um, if you're that person today, you're exactly who you need to be today is um, kind of like how I, how I view that. When I got out of prison, I knew my being a felon is an obstacle. I could have told myself no and not even tried. You know what? No, but I tried anyway because I was focused on my goal. Bradley had a job in mind that he wanted, but he was turned away because he's a felon. He couldn't do exactly what he wanted to do, but his path shifted him into a place where he found himself even more aligned with his purpose. Because I was rejected, diverted to a different place, I learned more, I took in more information, and I'm put in a position to where I can be more effective. My goal was not to be a teacher at the school. My goal was to help bring back the Ojibwe language and culture. Moving forward doesn't mean ignoring trauma or pretending we can erase its effects on our lives. Often we have to learn from it to move forward. Bradley traced some of the trauma in his life back to his relationship with language. Now, when I was a kid in Mille Lacs, 
language was everywhere. Grocery store, community center, walking down the road. I'd always hear it. But I remember going to Big Drum, they'll get up and talk. I'll ask my grandma, what do they say? She'll go, shh, be quiet. I'll go to, uh, now like my grandma's relatives will come over and visit, and they'll be laughing. I was like, what's so funny? And like, shh, be quiet. So that, over and over and over, through years, you know, I was about seven, eight, all the way to about 10 years old, I lived with my grandmother. And that was the response that I got when I was asking, what does that language mean? So I must have formulated a core belief that I am not meant to know what that language means. I am not meant to know what they're talking about. So I was like, I got to deal with that. That's something that's holding me back that was passed on from boarding school because this is another story. My grandmother would always talk about what happened to her brother at boarding school. Every time he spoke his language, they would take him down and chain him to a radiator in the basement. So a seven-year-old taking that in, I was like, if I speak the language, something bad is gonna happen to me. And I was told that tale multiple times. Developed a core belief, which, you know, really greatly affects my conscious thought. I'm not, not only am I not supposed to know what the Ojibwe language means when it's spoken, if I speak it, something bad is gonna happen to me. So, I started dealing with that, understanding that those are, that's something that I can reverse. When he was healing his own life, learning, teaching, and sharing Ojibwe became a cornerstone in Bradley's process. He knew it was more than learning a language, that it could be a process of learning about oneself. He understood that incorporating the language into drug treatment programs was important and not easy. After weeks and weeks of classes, students were having trouble retaining the words. So I have to reteach them every week. They may or may not have been practicing, but we're, I, was, I was there constantly with them. They were hesitant to discuss language, culture, and history. Probably what I think is because they're in a transition. They're really unsure where they want to go in life. Um, whether or not they even wanted to sober up, whether or not they wanted to know about themselves. And two hours a week on language was definitely insufficient, as any language teacher would tell you. But multiple methods were more engaging. And the more times I did different stuff, it kept people involved. But the discussions often led to being better people, how, how, how they wish they can be better people, a deeper need to understand one's own actions, like why, why can't I stop once I start? Why do I treat my kids that way? Why, why, no, why, why do I do what I do? For language learners with chemical dependency or mental emotional issues, sometimes both, most of the time, the language acquisition accompanied with an understanding of one's character preferences once I learn more about my own character and why I am the way I am, brain-wise, help me interact with my traditional beliefs better, help me interact with people better. 
because the Ojibwe language or any indigenous language is something that you use to truly express yourself. So some people say that there's four parts to the human, mental, emotional, and physical. I only use three because spiritual, your spiritual part is not one component of yourself. It is like a part of your being. It's like the blurred mixture of physical and spirituality. So if you can imagine your spirit having a mental, emotional, and physical experience with the world, it's gonna switch how you think about yourself in your interaction with two worlds now. So, get your desired results, you build a plan, go big or go home, but remember there's ripples effect to everything that you're gonna do. So, keep with the plan, evaluate it regularly, make changes, changes is okay. Indigenous people were a very adaptable bunch, which is the reason why we we're able to sustain through thousands and thousands of years on some of the harshest landscapes and conditions that today would be considered poverty. So, think about who you're affecting, what you're affecting, and where you're affecting. You never know where your ripple is going to end up. So, keep with it. This has been Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native resilience through and beyond trauma, narrated by me, Susan Bolio, and David Knoyer. This concludes our fourth episode, and we've finished sharing much of the framework for reflection about resilience trauma, and the impact on our lives. Remember, it's not what's wrong with us, it's what happened to us. In future episodes, we'll share more stories of people like Bradley Harrington who are making positive change in their lives and are serving as examples for all of us as we become healers in remembering resilience. Kick back, listen and chill to what I be speaking Cause what I have to say to you right now is very intriguing I'm talking about the ways of the Ojibwe people that seem to be leaving Yes, of course, I'm talking about the seven teachings So what are the seven teachings? Number one, respect Respect is something that we seem to neglect And if you take a look at the world, it's starting to have a big effect So maybe we should all take a look in the mirror and put ourselves in check Cause the world could be a lot better place if we showed each other some more respect Number two, truth Truth is something that I should be spitting in the booth. Truth is something that could be easy to take or harder than your tooth. Truth is something that people claim to have all the way through the roof, but it's also something they forget about when they get caught in a coup. Truth is something that we gotta learn to express. It's gotta come through our hearts and our chest, not so much through our brains when we stress. Number three, wisdom. wisdom that was rapper Thomas X from the Red Lake Reservation in Minnesota delivering his inspired track, Seven Teachings. We want to extend a thank you to him and the other Native artists that contributed music to this episode, including Wade Fernandez, Leah Lem and Molecular Machine, and the Red Tree Singers. Inspiration for this series comes from a growing number of Indigenous people and allies who are working to address resilience in the Native community. This includes podcast hosts Susan Bolio and David Knoyer, 
as well as the voices and stories they gathered for this series, including those of Lindsay McMurrin, Kim Lage, and Bradley Harrington, all of whom you heard during this episode. Sierra Edwards also assisted them in gathering interviews and stories. Sadie Lutmer acted as coordinating producer on this episode with sound design and additional instrumentals by Kaylin Keir. This podcast series was supported by staff at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children and funded by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Center for Prevention. For more information, visit the podcast webpage at rememberingresilience.home.blog.